0: What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. My name is Austin Jardine, and I am super excited for this episode. I have uh, have talked with Austin a couple of times, Mr. Lester from Fieldcraft, and we've got actually two parts to this, uh, to this episode, and I'm super, super stoked to share it with you. Uh, before we jump into it, uh, if you haven't yet, please take a, a quick second to like, rate, subscribe to the show, stay up to date on all of the goodness. It means... Means the world to me, and uh, does help the show. And uh, if you haven't yet either, uh, please go to uh, Instagram, look up the Vanguard Project, uh, follow me, and kind of see what I'm up to because, as you know, you may or may not be aware yet, uh, I don't really spend a whole lot of time talking about myself in this show. Uh, My goal is really to sit down and uh, have people share their stories with me, understand who they are, where they came from, what they're up to, how they got to where they're at, uh, all in the hopes of uh, getting you some maybe tidbits of information on how to move forward, find a new community to join in, some moto to get after it, whatever. The case may be. So my kind of mantra here is uh, growth through story and strength through community. So that being said, you know, I like it. Like I said, uh, I do my best really to leverage uh, other people's live stories to share with you rather than uh, kind of just b.s.ing and talking about myself. Um, so all of that to say, uh, you know, Mr. Lester is an awesome, awesome dude. And I met him actually uh, a couple months ago. Gosh, I think it was like a month ago. I was down at the uh, field crafted did uh, that first aid course. And it was just Super cool dude, and I'm really excited to, to kind of share his story or have him share his story. And, uh, you know, before we jump into it, I've been super fortunate over the years to partner with a, a couple of companies. And, uh, you know, today, today's episode is actually brought to you by Everly Stock. Um, Everly Stock manufactures several several different types of packs and technical gear for hunting edc military applications law enforcement all of the cool things uh there is to do out there and uh, i actually went in and you know i've got a variety of packs that i use for either hunting rucking at the gym uh, matches, whatever the case may be. But I actually went in and I picked out or picked out a, uh, a new Owyhee field shirt, which uh, honestly, so they've got in a couple different color patterns, right? They've got their camo patterns. Um, they've also got it in a tan, but they actually have it in a, in a gray, which I picked up cause you know, work shirt. And man, this thing is so comfortable. So I'm sure you've heard me talk about the Bruno hoodies. It's kind of like that four way stretch, super comfy, you know, kind of fit and feel, same material, maybe a little bit thicker. And uh, it's uh, super comfy. Fit me great. I actually went up a size up so it fit my monkey arms. I got long arms, but I wore that all day on Saturday. And I tell you what, it was so comfortable. Like this thing, I bought it because I wanted something that you know was long sleeved. I needed some new shirts for work, and uh, it is like professional, but I could also, you know, go hike and kill something in it. So, um, I would encourage you to, uh, take a look, see if maybe, uh, maybe you need one, let them know that Vanguard podcast sent you Call tuck at the retail store and be like, yo, I was sent here to pick up a field shirt. But, uh, yeah, that is about it for me. I hope you all have a great day. So we're going to roll an awesome episode with Mr. Lester of a uh, field craft survival. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, my name is Austin Jardine, and I'm going to not try to ramble too much today, but I'm super excited because with me is Mr. Austin Lester, who I'm really excited to talk to. You, you have done a lot of really cool stuff, and I there's a lot of things about you uh, that we talked about kind of leading into it that I had no idea that you do. So I'm really excited. Um, you've done a lot of firefighting work, your search and rescue, military experience. You're instructing now for field craft, a lot of Really, really fun thing. So, I don't want to take your intro away. If you don't mind, kind of just sharing a little bit about yourself, what you do, and then I will start to interrupt and maybe ask some questions to get you know a little bit better.
1: Yeah, totally, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on. It's cool to get on. And I was telling you before, I'm not super, per se, fond about talking about myself, but you know, if I can do it and uh, maybe somebody can learn from some of my hard lessons, then. Uh, all the better, you know, so I uh, appreciate having me on for that reason. But yeah, so uh grew up in a really rural part of North Carolina, man, um, you know, out in the sticks. If you've ever seen the uh, Andy Griffith show, the old black and white show yep. about the sheriff. Uh, so I'm from Mayberry, right? <laughs> uh, the town's called Mount Airy. And I actually grew up about 40 minutes outside of town out in the boonies, you know, and um, grew up, you know, I was in scouts and did the whole, you know, we had a little bit of acreage there and then surrounded by cattle and tobacco and doing that whole thing, man. And so it's like, you know, to me, it was just a way of life, but I'm realizing now that there's obviously a ton of people that don't share that uh, perspective of things, but it it gave me a unique perspective growing up and graduated high school with, you know, like 27 people and it's like tiny. Right. So it it gave me a unique perspective on the world uh, as I, you know, grew up and then, pursued a lot of the things that I kind of did in life and started at 17 um, and getting into fire and EMS and then did that for a few years, uh, joined the military, um, decided, you know, I hadn't had enough uh, adrenaline as a firefighter or uh, work in EMS. So I uh, joined the Air Force. A lot of people laugh at me and say, well, I thought you said you joined the military, you know, <laughs> joined the Air Force. And I always just tell them that, you know, I scored high enough on my ASVAB to have a choice. <laughs> That's always my, but I work with a bunch of Army guys now, so it's funny to say that. So nobody hate me for it. But uh, spent six years in the Air Force. Um, ended up injuring myself, and then you know started working on planes in my last you know little while I was in, and um, just couldn't get out of that job. They were trying to retain me, uh, and I was like, man, I did not join the Air Force to wrench planes. I met a lot of cool people there, but it just wasn't for me. And um, you know, I was looking at doing something else, and then I met. Uh, some of the guys from Fieldcraft and uh, started tapping back into some of my creative sides that I, you know, grew up doing a lot of creative things. And I just always had that creative brain and kind of started tapping back into it a little bit more. And um, they actually ended up hiring me on full time to, uh, you know, be the media director. And at the time, you know, I don't even know if I would have called it a media director. It was just I was the only, I was one of four guys in the company and we were filming YouTube videos. And, you know, I've been doing that ever since and just have been able to really use a lot of my experiences growing up and, um, uh, advocating for preparedness in people's lives and teaching people about preparedness, whether it's through, uh, you know, medical for, you know, emergency med, whether it's survival, whether it's, um, you know, any kind of defensive or security or. Uh, tactical, so to say, considerations—you know, things like that—and you know—and that's not per se my wheelhouse, is that? But it's—it's um, it's a part of that full spectrum of of being a prepared person and a responsible citizen. So uh, now I just do that full time as the creative media director for for Fieldcraft and get to rely on and use a lot of the experiences. And just, I'm really fortunate to be able to live a life where I do all the things I'm really passionate about doing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds like a wild ride. Like I. I am jealous, right? Like to me, that sounds like that sounds like nothing but fun the whole time, minus wrenching on planes, right? <laughs> yeah. So even that was
1: cool sometimes, you know. Yeah,
0: I believe it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you worked on, but I can imagine being around some pretty cool techs, probably a little bit of fun. Yeah, it's not bad. And I, I mean, I worked in
1: AFSOC, so Air Force Special Operations Command, on MC-130J models, which is the um, refueling and tactical insert. And Exfield platform for okay. special operations, which is, you know, I got to see and be participate and be a part of a lot of really cool stuff just within that. So it was fun. It had its place and definitely gave me some really unique experiences. <laughs> yeah. that. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that I, you know, done, man, as cool as it sounds, maybe on the outside, and, and it has been a really awesome ride. Definitely learned a lot of hard lessons. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I can imagine. So if we go back to kind of when it all started, right? So you said you grew up doing the scouts and everything. When you graduated 17, you went right into fire and EMS. Do you mind kind of talking about what it was that, that drove you down that route? I mean, was it purely adrenaline or were you like, I, I'm kind of a pyro, but kind of want to help people?
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, that's uh, so, you know, I don't I haven't talked about it a lot in the past. And I think partially it's because I didn't really um, ever think it was that important, um, but as I've gotten older and as I've like been teaching and and seeing other people's perspectives and learning from them, that is important as I've started teaching. And so what it really was is I remember, you know, 9, 11, um, I was a kid. uh, I was in fifth grade, I think, or sixth grade maybe. And, um, you know, being in a really small, uh, I wouldn't even call it a town, but in a really rural community, they sent us all home, you know, immediately whenever everything started unfolding. And I remember being at, at home and asking my mom. Uh, my mom was a NICU nurse, which is a neonatal intensive care, uh, you know, for premature babies and um so I grew up with that kind of in the background um or in the you know, back of my mind, but I remember asking my mom watching TV, um you know, why are these guys running back into those buildings? Like what are they doing? Everyone else is running away and it's not like I didn't know who firefighters were, it's not like I didn't know who police officers were, right? But I had never really seen it in that context. Yeah. Um, so when she was like, well, those are, you know, police officers and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and uh, you know, all these, all these folks who are first responders. And that's what they do is they, they go and they help people in these worst case scenarios. And I, it just always stuck with me and I'll never forget. I, I found the clip, you know, on YouTube of that I vividly remember seeing a firefighter with a police officer, uh, hand in hand, walking someone out of the smoke. And then immediately, as soon as they passed that off, that that patient off, they both looked at each other and turned around and ran back into the smoke.
0: Yeah. And it,
1: it it plays over my head um, often. And it really, really, really impacted me and kind of set me on that trajectory that I've been on really my entire adult life. And only in the last six months that I really explored how impactful that was to me and not even putting it all together for myself. So, um, and so, you know, when that happened, I immediately was like, well, how can I get involved? What do I need to do? And then found out about volunteer fire. And there was a, uh, uh, you know, I, I did, I went became a lifeguard, did that for a little while and then, um, immediately transitioned. And I had like almost no plan coming out of high school. And my mom was like, Hey, you should, you know, you, you realize at the community college uh, in town, there's an EMT program yes. You should look into that. And so I signed up for the EMT program, got started with the volunteer fire department, uh, volunteer rescue squad, and, you know, was doing nothing more than putting on an orange vest and carrying a flashlight and directing traffic and uh, on a car accident or whatever incident. And to me, that was just the coolest shit I'd ever done. You know, I was like... <laughs> I was was involved. I was a part of it. And to me, you know, I'm, I thought, you know, I might as well have been that firefighter running back into the twin towers, man. And it was just like, Holy shit, I'm actually a part of something, you know, I'm doing this thing. And um, as I progressed through EMT and I just loved it, uh, I just really found a passion for helping not, and it sounds so cliche to say helping people and, and people look at that and they say all the time, like how, oh, this is so heroic, all these firefighters and all this stuff. And it, and it is. And I, I don't mean to take away from that. But what I do know about firefighters and EMS uh, our paramedics, EMTs, police officers is in every one of us that does it passionately, there's this piece of selfishness that we're getting, that we're fulfilling right. um, in doing it. And sure, is it great that we're helping people and is it great that, um, you know, the the other end of that is good for everyone, um, but it is. It, it, I almost feel selfish uh, whenever I'm going out on a SAR call now, working for search and rescue for the sheriff's department now, and I almost feel selfish because I. And it sounds wrong, but I get excited, I'm like, "Oh, there's a call! Somebody needs us! Like, let's go!" And it's it's just filling my cup, you know what I mean? So yeah. um, it was just really cool learning about that and getting involved really, really young. Um, huh.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard that before, too, right? Where, you know, you're doing something for the greater good, but you're worried because it's not 100% altruistic, right? Like, (laughs) you're like, I'm fulfilling my own need by helping others that are in harm's way. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, so you said the past six months or so, you've really started to think about and kind of reflect back on how that one particular clip, right, shaped you. And and kind of helped drive you. Can you talk about, and this might be a little woo-woo, but like the emotion behind what pushed you?
1: I remember feeling, um, I remember feeling, I wasn't scared. I don't think scared is the word, but I I remember feeling uh, maybe out of control is the word. Okay. I just remember feeling like there there was nothing I could do. And it, it felt helpless and it felt wrong. And I couldn't put words around it when I was a kid, you know, and um, I couldn't, I just didn't know what to do with that emotion because maybe I hadn't, I just hadn't felt it with that kind of context before. And I didn't like it. I didn't like seeing people in need. I didn't like seeing people that were hurt or injured and feeling like I just had this drive of like, there's something I'm supposed to be doing. Right. Like if you're watching somebody, um, unload their truck bed of a bunch of stuff, you know, you just get that feeling of like, Oh shit, I need to go over there and help that guy grab that stuff and and help him do the thing. right? Right. Um, you know, I didn't get caught with idle hands as a kid and, you know, you should always be doing something. And it just, it gave me this weird emotion that I couldn't quite express. And, uh, I remember thinking how cool it was too. like, it's just so badass, man. Like that there's not a kid alive that hasn't dressed up as a firefighter as a cop and been like this is the coolest shit yeah. that they've ever seen because there's something about that heroic piece um, and I think exploring that as a kid when you can't quite understand what it is it gives you a unique sense of motivation of doing something bigger and I think that that you know it's fulfilled for everybody a little bit differently you know some kids find it on a you know, in athletics, you know, being a part of a sports team and getting to a championship. And some kids find it in uh, some other extracurricular activity, even in academics, where it's a measurable thing that they can accomplish a goal. Uh, And for me, man, I just I found my drive in that in that like doing things for other people. Um, And I was it was ingrained in me from as a kid of, you know, I was rewarded for doing hard work. I was rewarded for uh, putting out. I was rewarded for freaking, you know, stepping up and getting the things done. It wasn't, it wasn't like, Oh, you've got chores. Like, no, no, this is just life kid. And you, and you got to just do the things. And when we can do things as a team and as a family and get by um, it's better for everyone involved. And I was always incentivized that way uh, as a kid and growing up by my parents. And I believe that that combination kind of led me into this uh almost primal feeling of needing that I, I have to act when other people can't or won't. Okay. Um, I, and I think that that's kind of like, was the start for me of finding those emotions and finding my drive and doing any of that. And it's, it, it's hard to put words exactly to, but I think there's probably people out there that can relate to that feeling. And even whatever it is that you do now, you know, you find a reason to be motivated and do something that you love. Maybe it's not what you do for work, but maybe it's what you do in your own time that drives you to do it. And there's, it's hard to put words around, but that's what it was for me.
0: Okay. Okay. So when it came to, I guess, harnessing that primal feeling and, and I imagine this is something that you're either doing now still learning how to do right. How did you, I guess, and learn to act on that. And I'm asking so that if somebody has that same sense of like, Holy shit, like there's something inside I need to go do something How did you, I guess, maybe in these initial kind of phases into, you know, life for you, how did you take those first steps?
1: First thing I I remember doing is I found someone that I looked up to. Um, I, you know, in EMS or in the EMT class that I took, there was one guy that was an instructor that really stood out to me. He uh, he was extremely knowledgeable. Uh, He was a, you know, he's already a paramedic he had all these crazy experiences and he was very articulate, but he was very, very relatable. You know, he seemed like he could just be your best friend. He seemed like he could be somebody that you were, um, you know, who you had known for a long time. And so when I met this guy, I just looked up to him. Right. And I was like, man, like in this space, in this environment of what I'm enjoying doing and what I want to do, I want to be like that guy. And then I got, as I, you know, he, and, and I think anybody that goes into anything new, you find the people in that space that you look up to and you want to be like, and you kind of mimic that. So whenever I got to know him better, his name's Brad. Um, and, you know, when I got to know him better, I asked him questions personally, like, Hey, what did you do when you were in my suit in my shoes? What did, how did you start out and how did you navigate these things? Cause you know, I wasn't a great test taker. I was really worried about the academics of the class. I was really good at figuring out all the hands-on out, hands on stuff. And, and I think that's something that made EMS for me, um, I don't want to say easy, but simple, is because there's so much involved that's just monkey see, monkey do. And then there is a piece of that academics so of you have to have a, a more in-depth understanding, you know, a knowledge base, but getting started, it was like, okay, monkey see, monkey do. Let me just hear what he has to say, regurgitate that, um, take in the information that I can get by just literally mimicking the people that I respected in the, in the space. And that's what worked for me. Um, and translating that, um, emotion and translating that feeling into how do I just get going without just spinning my tires in the mud? I just found somebody that I respect, found somebody I want to be like, and then mimic what they're doing and and start to uh, copy it and just add the aspects of that person or people um, the characteristics that they have that you admire and start literally just pretending, right? Like, I mean, (laughs) it's till
0: you make
1: it, it, man. And it's like, I, I just (laughs) very vividly remember saying like people made fun of me in the class. Like, Oh, you're just trying to be like so-and-so. And my argument was like, why would I not? Yeah. Like he's teaching this class. Like, why would I not want to be like him? He's he has all these awards and is known for being a badass in this industry, in this space and being really good at his job. Why would I not copy them? Yeah. Um, and so even from like the verbiage I used, everything to like the gestures and mannerisms that I tried to have. <laughs> and, it, and maybe it is silly. Maybe it was goofy, but I was like, I'll be damned if I'm not like if I don't know in the absence of anything else to know to do. Yeah, I'm going to copy the people that are the best at it. And that's
0: kind of where I started. (laughs) So when it came to asking kind of those open questions, right. and, And kind of being transparent, the new guy, right. Whatever the rookie, was it pretty easy for you to, I guess, build a rapport and, and get the training and knowledge base that you needed to step forward? I guess how, what, what was in that instance was the most helpful for you to learn and become better?
1: Yeah. Good question. Um, Yes, it benefited me a lot to take the time out of my, take my personal time and be relatable um, to these people because they were willing to then see that I was something and someone worth investing in. They, and I can say this now from being on the flip side, where when you see someone who admires what you do or looks up to what you do or just wants to do it, and no matter what the occupation or job is, uh, it's really, you can quickly identify people uh, that you're wanting and willing to spend time with and investing in. And the biggest thing that you can do to become that person that someone is looking up to is to, like I just said, kind of copy that person and mimic the things that they're doing because that are, you know, admirable. And so it and I was really fortunate that my parents being who they were in the way that they raised me, you know, I was just blessed with the gift of gab, man. And, you know, being able to talk to people and, um, and be relatable, but I'm really transparent. And, you know, I was joking tonight at work. uh, The blessing and the curse of working with me is you never have to wonder how I feel. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, being able to just be transparent with those guys early and just say, Hey, look, I'm just here to learn. I just want to, I'm going to ask you all the questions. I'm going to be that annoying student. I'm probably going to ask a lot of dumb questions. I'm probably going to say a lot of dumb shit, but I'm here to learn and I want to be like you and I want to be better. And I don't want to just be mediocre. I want to be the best. Yeah. And having that transparent drive while not being arrogant, I think really was impactful for the people who mentored me Okay. Uh, because you have to, to learn anything, you got to be a good student. And part of being a good student is making yourself available to learn and putting yourself out just enough to be uncomfortable, putting yourself out there just enough to maybe even embarrass yourself a little bit, but and not being scared to fail, you know, you kind of have to be willing to fail forward, so to speak. And that was a big part of it for me was investing my personal time where these guys could see, Hey man, this guy's dedicated. And no matter what, you know, for you is like, for me, it was like, dude, just maybe being funny, but it's like, I was just dumb about a lot of stuff, man. <laughs> like, I don't know a better way to say it. I was just dumb. And I was like, I just don't get some of this stuff, but I'm willing to invest my efforts in getting better and learning more. And I always knew, you know, I'm not going to be the smartest guy here. I'm not going to be the, um, you know, the, most physically fit or the most badass guy here, but I'll be damned if anybody's gonna outwork me. So, yeah, and that was just ingrained in me from a very early age. And so, I think when these guys saw that, and I was, I showed up time and time and time again for all the extracurricular stuff. I showed up to, I volunteered my time to be a patient so the paramedics could get their continuing education. I showed up to uh, just be a, a damn, you know, traffic direction guy. <laughs> And I was the guy and I was willing to volunteer every time for the shittiest job just to be involved, just to get my foot in the door so I could start to learn what little bits I could pick up every time. So I just knew that through exposure, I was probably going to learn more than trying to sit down and read a book. So that's why I was just I took advantage of every opportunity I could to just be there and be involved. And, you know, I didn't give a shit if people wanted to say that I was the teacher's pet. I didn't give a shit if people wanted to say that I was just copying whoever. I didn't give a shit what people had to say. I was there to be the best version of the person I wanted to be. Yeah. And as philosophical as that sounds. Uh, I remember thinking thoughts similar to that in that moment, you know, okay. even at 17 and 18 years old, I remember thinking, Hey, if I want to be good at this, if I want to be the best at this, I got to put in more effort than everyone else. Yeah. And what I was willing to do.
0: Huh. So I'm hearing <clears throat> at least in this, you know, in this time frame, right. Fail forward, exposure, mm-hmm. transparency. Right. And I guess, exposure right it's kind of yeah. I don't know if I said exposure yeah. twice but but definitely being around and, and kind of being present right okay so I know that we talked that you said that you've made your fair share of mistakes right and yeah. and for a fun one in this kind of time period right what was the biggest mistake you made that you learned from that you're like fuck I wish I would have known not oh to do man that. <laughs> Dude, I can tell you uh actually a pretty dumb story it's pretty
1: funny um, and I've got a handful of them, but, um, part of that, like being willing to make yourself vulnerable and there, there is a line there, right. And until you find it, you don't know, uh, what the, what that looks like. Right. And, and I think anybody that's experienced this, and I'll, and I'll talk about it in a second. That's experienced it will relate, but there was a, uh, an experience I had where, uh, this girl that was in, uh, one of the departments that I worked with or volunteered with, she was, uh, married to this guy and, uh, who was also in that same department. And I kind of oddly stumbled into her having kind of an affair with this other guy. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not even 18. right? <laughs> so basically, <laughs> yeah. Right. And so basically what ended up happening is, is the guy was a kind of in a position of, um, leadership in this one department. And I was heavily influenced by them in a moment that was potentially weird for them, for all of us. I mean, it's not like I walked in on them banging or anything, but they were just there. It was like pretty obvious, uh, this is out of place. And they were like, Hey, check it out. This is what's happening. You know? And she led me to believe and he led me to believe that she was in this abusive, bad relationship and that, you know, she's trying to get out of it and yada, yada, yada. Right. Well at the time, I didn't have, I didn't grow up with a cell phone, man. Like I didn't have a cell phone uh, until actually after this, I had an iPod touch at the time. Right. <laughs> so I only had this app and could send text messages when I had Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, it doesn't use a real phone number, right? You can't track the shit. You can't do anything with it. Well, I had this guy's phone number in my iPod Touch, right? Well, they started getting me to send these screwed up messages to this guy saying, like, hey, man, I'm with your wife, blah, 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 doing all this thing, right? And here I am thinking, like, oh, we're sticking it to this guy. He's a <laughs> jackass. You know, he's this abusive asshole. And now, um, you know, this person of, in uh, leadership in this thing is going to think favorably of me and it's going to, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. Being like this guy that's like, Holy shit, man. Like this is, you know, that's fucked up. They shouldn't be like, he can't treat her like that and he deserves to get all this stuff. Right. Well come to find out it was all horse shit. And I'm basically just, you know, being a huge asshole to this guy telling, you know, being like the middleman of this whole thing. And yeah. then like, you know, I think about that now where I'm at in my life and I'm like, bro, I would have like, Lost my shit on a kid for that. Right. (laughs) And at the time, being so willing to just trust and like jump right in for whatever anybody said, you know, I got, I got played, you know, in this situation. And it didn't come out that that was the case, or I didn't learn. It, It came out later. This whole thing kind of unspiraled for them, you know, a few months later. But I didn't realize what had happened in that situation until years later. Yep. And then had to have a conversation with that guy because it was eating me alive. Yeah. About, hey man, I need to tell you this. This is going to be a really hard conversation and you know, maybe you'll hate me and maybe you want to beat my ass and you can totally do that. Cause I would understand, but <laughs> this is what happened. That was me. I was doing this thing. Um, and I apologize because I was wrong. and I shouldn't have done that. I was super easily influenced. Um, uh, and it was an immature thing for me to do. And you know, that guy actually told me after that, he's like, you know, at, in the moment, you know, when I told him that he was like, just real quiet, kind of, you know, soaking in what I was saying. And he was like, okay, he's like, let me take some time and think about this. And I'll get, uh, you know, and we'll chat again. And I was like, okay, cool. I totally understand. And, uh, he came back to me about a week later and he told me to my face, you know, he's like, check it out, man. He's like, that actually has given me a ton of healing because that was the one piece of this whole thing that didn't make sense that I, has bothered me. And so, because I couldn't figure out why this would be happening whenever I wasn't just an abusive asshole, and this whole thing it really bothered him, and so he was actually able to get something back out of it. Yeah, by me just apologizing and being upfront, being willing to be transparent and and open and honest with him about it. And dude, that was like it's like the dumbest scenario, right? Like it's so childish and immature. But yeah, you know, for me that was a big lesson as a young man. Like, damn, man, like I got played, he got played. I was an instrumental in being an asshole. To causing hurt to someone that they didn't need it and unfortunately that that lesson isn't you know some badass lesson in you know being some awesome paramedic or firefighter but it's a lesson in like humility and it was a lesson in not being taken advantage of and being manipulated and uh, i learned a lot from that and have continued to use that lesson in my life and you know anybody that's been involved in anything like that where they've been manipulated or used that lesson sticks hard, right? And so it's just always been in the back of my mind, and I'm like, I'm never getting played again by someone's lies and and BS, right? Yeah. So that was an odd early lesson for me uh, of doing something the hard way where, you know, don't be the fucking teacher's pet, man. Like, don't pretend or get involved in something that you shouldn't just because to try to gain favoritism. And I justified it by trying to say, well, he deserves it doesn't matter if he fucking deserves it. It was none of my business, right? right. <laughs> like, be an adult,
0: step out, butt out, do your thing. But uh, an odd lesson. That is interesting. That's that's like something you would see on like a sitcom, right? Yeah, like is. like you'd see that on like late 90s. Yeah, like. It's, like a, it's
1: like a soap opera thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. So, okay. So maybe a personal question in that same vein, right? Like that takes a lot of stones to go talk to the guy that, for lack of a better phrase, right? You wronged, right? What, what, what advice do you have for people that might have something like that, that's eating them up that they're like, Hey, listen, I don't want to go reopen this moon. I don't want to go feel this way to go handle their own situation. Yeah,
1: That's a good question. It's tough, man, because I've kind of positioned myself in my, in my life, personally to be uh, transparent. And it's, it, it's been really beneficial uh, to be that way with people and personal relationships and professional relationships, especially. And I try to, I'm a very candid personality, you know, like I, I say what I mean and mean when I say, and it's benefited me because of that. However, you know, there is the downside of that. And it's, it's a, it's a, it takes balance and I tend to be on one side of the balance and the other. And it's something I personally work on all the time, but I would say seek transparency, seek, um, being seek honesty in things because dude, it's, it's really hard whenever you catch yourself or get caught in the middle of something that's mischievous or, um, it's a hard position to get out of. And then usually, as we all know, I mean, Jesus, there's a hundred children's books written on it. Like one lie leads to another lie, leads to another lie. And even if it's not specifically a lie, one deceitful thing leads to another deceitful thing. And, you know, if you find yourself on the wrong end of something like that, you have to start, it it takes a fight to get back where you need to be and to to be back in a mental state where you can even feel good about yourself. Right. Because I've been there in that scenario specifically. And in other scenarios, when I was a young man where I screwed up a lot of stuff uh, and made a lot of dumb mistakes. And so one of the things I would say as advice to get out of that is, I mean, you got to think about the gravity of the situation, right? Like, I mean, you know, there's some things that might just be better off left unsaid now. And that's something that you got to deal with because decisions have consequences, but, you know, depending on the size of, you know, whatever that is, um, I would say, pursue it. I would say seek out to get to that transparency and seek out the honesty and and don't be afraid to confront it. but understand that there's ramifications man like you can lose relationships you can lose friendships you can lose jobs you can lose uh things that matter to you things that you want but you have to you know hopefully you can at least learn from it and be upfront going forward and not fall into the stupid traps like that right and I mean I feel like I'm trying to give like somebody like, talking like somebody's dad on the front porch somewhere but it's like it's true man even in, and especially in the, in those industries because anyone that's involved in fire ems any of that stuff knows how small communities are same in the military very small communities everybody knows everybody and you got to be careful man because word gets around and you know your reputation uh and the perception of your reputation unfortunately is everything it doesn't matter if it's true or not if people perceive it then you might as well consider it truth.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Perception is reality. <clears throat> so okay, okay. So before maybe we move into what led you down the air or the Air Force route, is there anything that's left unsaid that you feel is important to share during kind of the fire EMS phase of life?
1: And I get, dude, I, there's so much, <laughs> so much there,
0: right? But, um, dude, it was like
1: one of the most badass parts of my life and being young and being involved in something that really mattered set a a tone for me in my professional career, let's call it my, in my professional aspects of my life where it uh, you know, there's a lot of great things about fire EMS that are, you know, the high speed, the adrenaline, the, you know, and it's like, it's not every day. It's like a 70, 30 split. If that it's like 70%, helping grandma out of the floor because she fell at 2 a.m. and 30% car accidents and building fires and crazy stuff. But and maybe even like 80-20. But those moments you, like, live for, and there's a lot of lessons and cool shit to be learned there. But, dude, the one of the big things is, like, don't sacrifice doing something that you love for your mental health, man. Like, early in that, and because I was so young, dude, trauma, like, really – has played a role and played a number on my brain. And I didn't even realize it. Like I didn't realize what it was really doing uh, at the time. I just knew that I started feeling weird and started not giving a shit when I saw people that were hurt or dead. And that to me, because I'm, I do care and I am a very personable, uh, you know, personality that bothered me when I was like, you know, doesn't matter to me anymore. So I didn't realize that that's like, you know, kind of was a trauma response of trying to disassociate, but Uh, you know, pay attention to like your mental health, man, because it's like, it's hard to get back and it takes more work to get it back than it takes to cause the problem. Yeah, It's just one of the unfortunate realities of those kinds of jobs. But when I was doing it freaking 11 years ago, 10 years ago, it, the mental health of dealing with trauma wasn't a thing, right? You just dealt with it. You just got over it. And, you know, I'm glad now that there is a lot more to be said about it and I think that there's a lot people should be paying attention to even outside of those career fields where you might not even realize and and, but put the efforts into taking care of your mind and take the efforts in like pursuing what you love to do but don't be willing to sacrifice too much to
0: get it yeah so that's that's something that's near and dear to my heart right is the mental health side of things right like I've talked to some folks you know like my wife works in law enforcement right like I've got my own OCD right I've talked to people about depression and suicide and all sorts of just life shit right mm-hmm. so yeah. when you when and this can might get personal and we can 100% deflect but um, when you talk about kind of the trauma side of it not really giving a shit when you see people hurt dead whatever right that trauma response right I, I imagine for some people that's a perk and some people that's a flag how did you start to navigate the water right knowing that this is 11 years ago now right yeah to to say hey well something's maybe not right hmm. that's a good question um
1: i think that i was able to identify the contrast and when i started and where i was at um when i started it it very much impacted me to see something traumatic where i was like you know and, and there's a handful of calls that come to mind but you know, one particular uh, where a gal uh, got ejected out of the vehicle, was a, <clears throat> I actually didn't even respond in the ambulance during duty hours, man. I was actually on my way back from a, I think it was on, way back from a date or something, <laughs> man. I was on my way home and um, I saw headlights. And I, again, I lived in a rural part of the state, right? I mean, it was a 40 minute drive to town, but, you know, I was 20, 30 minutes outside of town. And I remember looking down this hill where there's a bunch of S-curves, the bottom of the hill i saw lights and they were tumbling and then they went out of view and i was like that was really weird like was that a wreck like there's no way and i was thinking the whole way down like oh there's no way that that was a that was a wreck because there's not a road there well duh right so as i got down there i saw dust kind of still floating and hovering in the air and i pulled over in a parking lot that just happened to be right there at this church and this curve uh, hopped out grabbed a flashlight and i jumped back And was flashing my light around trying to find it and walked up on a a gal that had got ejected out of the car. and was laying in the dirt. And, uh, and I could then see the edge of the car. And I mean, she was like very traumatically injured. You know, there was a lot of, uh, like there was multi-system trauma involved. I mean, she had compound fractures in her legs, uh, like a pretty bad open head injury, uh, a lot of facial trauma, like a lot was going on. And so I immediately, did what I kind of could immediately and open an airway um, stop a massive hemorrhage, things like that, with just what I had in my bag and then had to run over to the other car and find out if she was the only, you know, occupant, see if there's anyone else in there. And I didn't even have a cell phone, you know, like I, I didn't have a cell phone. Yeah. And so I had no way to call or get anyone to come get there to help. And so um, ran over to the car And there was another occupant, another girl that was in the car that was pinned in the vehicle. And in EMS, you have an entrapment and you have a pin in, right? Uh, And and entrapment means that you're just trapped inside the vehicle, that the doors maybe are slammed, that the windows are crunched and, you know, the car is manipulated around you to where you can't get out. A pin in means that there's been so much intrusion into the vehicle that the vehicle is physically pinning you inside the vehicle, Uh, rather the dash is smashed into your legs, uh, You know, the, the roof is, is coming and collapsed and it's holding you down, whatever it is, some version of that. Well, she, um, she was pinned in the vehicle by the, by the door and the dash, it was pinning one of her legs and she was sitting, um, kind of, you know, catty cornered into, into some trees and the vehicle was super unstable. Um, she was barely conscious. And so I'm having to make decisions on the fly on how do I get in to help? The vehicle's unstable, Well, fortunately, another guy pulled up and this was kind of late, you know, this was like 10 or 11 o'clock. And so there's not a lot of just, you know, through traffic on a country road at 10, 11 at night. And so this guy pulled over because I specifically parked my car like right on the edge of the road. I mean, it's like a 25 or 30 mile an hour zone. So, you know, I wasn't anticipating anybody like smashing into my vehicle, but I specifically did it in hopes that someone would stop and see my car. Well, he stopped and I started yelling cause he got out of the vehicle. And I mean, that's just what people in the country do, I guess. Um, and, and so uh, I was like, Hey man, call 911 if you can. Uh, I was like, there's a, there's a lady up there in the field that's injured really badly. I got another one down here. Well, he had a bunch of, you know, he was actually in a, uh, you know, kind of a work truck, had a bunch of ropes and, and tie downs and things like that. And I was able to get a bunch of tie downs out of his vehicle while he, drove up the road to somebody's house to call 9-1-1 because I mean, he didn't have a cell phone either yeah. and uh, drove to somebody's house and was banging on the door calling call 9-1-1. Well, I actually like stabilized this vehicle with tie downs as best I could um, to try, you know, with the knowledge that I had at the time um, so I could make it safe to try to like get in there. And I'm assuming a shit ton of risk doing something like that. And I, I mean, you know, and I try not to be like a do as I say, not as I do kind of a guy, but man, in that moment when you're faced with it, you kind of have to just make decisions. And that's the decision I made and was willing to take what risk I was assuming and was able to get in there and, um, you know, got a tourniquet on her leg and was able to start treating a few other things and was bouncing back and forth between the two, uh, the two victims. And, um, EMS got there and they ended up both living and surviving. But, uh, I think the one gal ended up losing both of her legs. I know for sure she lost one. I think she lost the other one as well. The girl that was pinning the vehicle, um, ended up having some pretty severe injuries that, Um, you know, she was just jacked up for a long time and I followed, there's not very many calls that I followed or even have the ability to follow when you work in EMS, especially uh, when you work in places where you have a large capacity of patients, but being in a rural part of the state, you know, I was able to kind of follow along at least a little bit roughly with what had happened. And that's the best start to my knowledge, I remember, but I remember after that call when EMS the other guys got there with the ambulance and the rescue got there and fire got there. I remember on the way home, um, just busting out in tears, like almost uncontrollably where I was shaking and had to pull over. And the whole time I'm crying, I'm like, so confused. Like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Why am I crying? I'm not sad. I'm not angry. Nothing is going on with me. And I'm in my brain, in my mind, totally. Okay. Like having this conversation with myself, but physically I'm having this reaction coming down from this. And I'm, I mean, I've got blood all over my clothes. Um, you know, my jump bag was all torn to shit in the backseat of my car and all half the gears gone out of it. And I remember pulling over, trying to like get myself together, but I didn't even know how to like get myself together. Cause I didn't know what to tell myself to get it to stop. Cause I didn't know why I was doing it. And I was like, what the hell was that? You know, and I get home and I was fine, took a shower and went on about my life and didn't really think about it, but that call stuck out as like one of the first times where my body had a physical reaction to the physiological things that happens to your brain and your body under stress. Yeah. And it was never, it was, wasn't anything different than I had even experienced other times riding along in the ambulance, but it was just so different because I witnessed it. I was the first one there. I was there with these people for near an hour by myself trying to manage this. And I was just putting an immense amount of pressure on myself as anyone I think would of trying to do the most good. And, uh, that stuck out to me as, um, you know, it was just really stressful, man. And I, I had seen all those same injuries before I had seen, um, you know, I'd been under stress to try to help people, whatever, but that one was just this had this different feel, different stress to it. And after that, I, you know, there's a handful of other things, Uh, situations I can think of but then remembering how impactful that moment was for me of remembering like bursting into tears and this whole freaking thing and then years later where I could deal with the same amount of stress and my brain's way of guarding against that reaction happening was to not give a shit Um, where I don't think that it did um, but could have affected my performance and that's at that point, you're completely counter countering what it is that you're even there to do. Yeah, And I recognize that if I'm not going to care and I'm getting away from this really in-depth, like feeling and drive primal feeling that I had as like, even as a kid, seeing 9-11 of trying to help and do something, if I'm sacrificing doing the best job, or if I'm sacrificing, actually caring for someone where I could be sacrificing performance, it's not worth it. And that contrast for me, as I looked at that, I was just like, I got to do something else. I need to take a break. I need to do something. I even took leave. Um, I did all those things. And it was like, you know, I, if I'm going to not care, if I'm going to get to this point where my brain um, isn't allowing me to care enough, and I can't be human, then I'm not doing this for the right reasons anymore. And so uh, it was hard, man. It wasn't easy to just be like, eh, I'm going to go do something else. But I knew I had to because I just knew I had gotten to a point in my mind where because I wasn't dealing with trauma the way I should, because I wasn't dealing with my emotions and feelings and all that bullshit that no guy or anybody that works in the A-type guy or gal wants to deal with, because it just wasn't a thing, I had effectively put myself in a position uh, to really set myself up for failure, and I recognized that and decided that I needed to move to something else.
0: Interesting. Uh, it was
1: hard, man. It was a hard decision.
0: Yeah, I've heard. I, I've heard that when you get to the point where you no longer care, right, what happens there's no longer that sense of urgency that drive that desire that you then become the liability.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. And there's guys in the military that have been in the military that can tell you about experiences just like that, man, or or people that have even been in a state of grieving can talk on that, right? Like where they just not, you know, they're so grief stricken that they don't care. And, you know, now they're making really poor decisions with their life and, and just doing reckless things and, that is just not a place that you want to be in and you got to find a way to recognize it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So coming out of that, making the hard decision, right. To, to move on, uh, you, you said that you scored high enough on your ASVAB to have a choice.
1: <laughs> yeah, we came that I scored like a 55 or something. Not that
0: <laughs> so did, was there like a, an underlying desire to go to the air force or was it just like, ah, oh, sounds good. We'll go for it.
1: Yeah. Well, so I actually started to go, um, into the Marines um, talked with the Marine recruiter first and then talked with the army recruiter and uh, and then was talking to them about my experience that I had up into that point. Cause they were trying to find something applicable And the Marine Corps. You know, he was like, well, you know, the, the Marine Corps is not responsible for any med. We, you know, pass that off to the Navy because we're on the front lines and we deal with only doing this man shit or whatever. And I was just like, you know, I had this, you know, that little alpha thing going. I was like, hell oh, yeah, you know, like I'll go be a freaking O three eleven 311 and infantryman in the Marine Corps. And thank God I didn't do that because of all my friends that I know, I did do that. said, it wasn't a great experience unless you were there because you really wanted to be. And, uh, and then talked to the army guy. And, you know, we talked about being a medic and we talked about special forces and we talked about a few different things. Uh, talked with him over the course of a couple of weeks. And then when the air force recruiter, uh, heard about my background. He's like, dude, I've got the freaking job for you. And he sold me on pararescue. And I, and then at that point I was like, dude, I I don't want to do anything else uh, because that's like all the things I love doing rolled into one uh, except with a gun. Right. Right. So uh, I just was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so my mom's dad, my grandfather was um uh, in the army air corps during world war ii and he was a waste gunner on a b-17 nice. so then as soon as i like you know i was like well dang this is this cool like lineage thing right so then i was just freaking sold and uh and decided to go air force
0: that's funny so did you end up going all the way down through the pararescue or did you uh find something so
1: else? i spent a few months in the pipeline and i dude i i struggled because um you know basic training was like it was kind of like a bad joke. Um, you know, it wasn't hard. It wasn't, um, difficult. It was very simple. It's dude, the easiest things you can ever do in your life is just follow instructions. Yeah. And, you know, I actually got out of shape in basic training, uh, and then immediately went over to the different side of the base. And we start, um, this at the time it was called the battle program where you basically just had, um, cadre of combat controllers, TACPs, PJs who are running uh, essentially an eight hour a day workout program. And you went in there and you just got jacked and you worked out and you did calisthenics and you learned about the different career fields and all that kind of stuff. And I did that until the next selection class started, the next indoc class started and then ended up spending, you know, a fair amount of time in that program and then getting hurt, getting washed back and then getting hurt and then getting washed back. And a lot of it was just because, you know, um, I just wasn't educated going into the process and wasn't as physically prepared as I should have been. Had I been in better shape, I was in good shape. I was in really good shape, but I wasn't in endurance shape. And had I been in more of an endurance shape and, and taken my body on like these long runs and, and really just worked out for an extended period of time, like an endurance athlete, I think I'd have been much more successful, but because I wasn't in the shape I needed to be, uh, I just kept breaking. And so, um, Ended up jacking my knee
0: up pretty good. All right, so we're gonna make a bit of a harsh transition here. Uh, Austin and I took a took a quick look at this and kind of just wanted to rearrange things a little bit. And so we're gonna talk uh, a little bit specifically, uh, more specifically, about some of the uh, the things that he's learned as far as troubleshooting experiences and, and kind of skills that he's developed in order to develop uh, kind of that that troubleshooting on the fly, quick uh, adaptation to a an unknown problem per se. So, Austin, if you don't mind talking about what uh, what you've learned and the skills that you've developed and kind of the techniques that you've you've kind of of put together to help uh, really establish yourself and reorient to an, an unknown problem per se. Yeah,
1: so you know, and I it, it kind of went back to like learning that piece in EMS, right? Like where I, I had no idea where to go, but what I did is I just said, "Hey, here's what I do know, the skill set that I have." So I have a baseline, and I have a uh, where I'm trying to get to, and so now let's find the stepping stones to get me from here to there, and so. One of the biggest things I learned is that not every, just because you're moving quickly and in a hurry doesn't mean that you're fast and it doesn't mean that you're efficient. So running around like a chicken with your head cut off, just because there's a problem doesn't mean that that's the solution is to just work fast. Right. I think a lot of people associate getting shit done with moving quickly. And sometimes that's the case, but there's a lot of times it's not the case. So sometimes just slowing down, taking a few breaths, truly assessing a problem and then tackling it and not just looking at it in a linear way, but looking at it from different perspective, different uh, angles of finding the solution really gives you just truly a different perspective of finding the solution. So um, I'm trying to say this without just saying a lot of words because it's hard whenever, but it is a, there is an aspect to, to it. That's like, You kind of you have or you don't, but there is an aspect that definitely can be learned at home. And I think um, a lot of the things that I had when I showed up that helped me and still help me today is just the way I was raised. You know, we, you know, I just I didn't have the ability to just go out. And when my dad or my mom said, go do this, it's not like I could just always come back and ask 100 questions on how to get there. Yeah. I had to learn how to ask really good questions up front before I ever even got there and then figured out when I got there. So, um, I think it, you know, for something measurable, for something that people can actually be actionable with is looking at the problem, truly identifying the problem. Uh, the problem isn't always just surface deep, right? So yeah. actually understanding the problem and then asking the questions up front that will give you, the answers to things when asking questions isn't available anymore. So, and that takes practice, right? You don't just figure out the right questions to ask up front all the time. You have to get some experience, asking questions, not having all the answers, and then just working through it. Sometimes that just means you just got to work harder, it just means it's going to take you a little longer, it just means yeah. it's going to be a little bit more painful. But as you gain that experience, um, you then are able to ask better questions to identify the problem more as as a whole and identify it faster and then get to a solution faster. Yeah. So there's a lot that goes into it, but definitely just jumping in and trying to get it done is the best first step. Like sometimes there isn't the perfect thing to do, but you have to just choose in that moment, what's the next most right thing to do, right?
0: Yeah. I'm hearing wisdom through Experience and skill set development with a little bit of pre-plan- or, uh, pre-planning. That's, that's what I'm hearing.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, and wisdom, you know, wisdom to me is experience and judgment, you know, yeah. and when you put those together, you end up with some kind of wisdom. And that's why you can have guys that are wise beyond their ears, right? Because they have a lot of experience and they have good judgment. So when you can put those together, uh, it usually will lead you to a good path.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So moving into your search and rescue, you know, as a civilian now, right. I know that that's something that I've de- I'm definitely interested in and I want to be respectful of your time tonight, kind of talking what, what I guess, drove you down that path, excites you about it. Right. And then for me, kind of out of my own curiosity, barriers to entry for somebody that might want to get into it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I, I've, know that same feeling that drive of getting out there and and doing something for my community uh and i didn't see it the same way you know young as i do now and especially after the military um i i do see a huge value in bettering my community because um you know that's the community that i live in that's the community that my friends live in and that my family lives in and that um Why would I not want to make that better? Because when it's better for them and me, it's better for everybody. And it's like, it just doesn't make sense to not. And I feel a conviction, honestly, to, you know, and and by no means am I saying I'm the most knowledgeable uh, guy out there. But even with my knowledge base, just what I have to offer, I like I would be doing a disservice to myself and my community to not try to get out there and do something. Uh, where I have a skill set at something that I'm, I'm, you know, I I would say I'm good at and I just feel convicted to offer that in some capacity um, in some way outside of just serving myself in a job, but doing something for my community. So that's what really drove me into it. And, and, and one, it just sounds fucking cool, right? (laughs) Like going out in the mountains and uh, you know, in the, in the worst of conditions and, getting people out of uh, what could be the worst day of their life. And it's sure it's similar to EMS and it's a piece of EMS, but it's got a really unique flavor. You know what I mean? And so uh, it's just so different and it's, it's very unique in its mission set. And so barriers to entry, man, there's, there's not that many, but what I would suggest is that you definitely need to get some, so one, you need to have some good wood skills, right? Uh, wood skills to me are, are just like foundational skills for you to be comfortable in the woods. A lot of guys who hunt, a lot of guys who fish already have decent amount of wood skills, right? They're already sure-footed and, and confident in their abilities in the backcountry. And that's a big piece of it is just, you know, if you haven't spent very much time in the woods or spent ever done any overnights in the woods, you don't know what it's like to put weight on your back and walk around and, just be a little bit uncomfortable and enjoy that. <clears throat> I would say go get used to that. Um, carry a backpack in the woods, get some good boots, put on the right clothes. Um, don't go out too far and, and just figure out what it's like. Get a little sense of that and um, do it in a very controlled environment, doing a controlled setting where mistakes can't be catastrophic and just get used to that, get used to that feeling of carrying the weight and, and being a little cold and being a little uncomfortable and, you know, working up a sweat, you know? And then I would say um, pursue knowledge in the space or the area that, sh- that you live in, right? One of the biggest things that I struggle with on the search and rescue team here is that I'm new to the area. I don't know this area, the, the, the country here very well. I know it much better than most, just because I'm out in it enough, and I explore a lot. Like I spend a lot of time outside, and and it it's just something I'm really passionate about doing is being outside. And uh, my job takes me out there a lot now in search and rescue. But uh, you got to learn the area. I would say that that's going to be really beneficial. And then also think about the rides that you have to work right. So for us here uh, in Utah, it's snow machines. I didn't grow up with a snow machine. First time I got on a snow machine here with the search and rescue team, I launched myself about 15 feet into about six feet of powder (laughs) and realized what a pain in the ass it is to walk and stumble in six feet of snow for 20 minutes to get back to your machine. Right. So that's a learning curve for me. I got to figure that out, but something I do have a lot of experience with is rope systems. That's something I I learned that in EMS. I did a lot of it military and I really enjoy it personally and on my own time. So that's something I am good at that I can offer right out of the gate. And then, You just have to figure out, you know, we got a single track team. Can you ride a dirt bike? Can you get up there and do that? Um, Part of the single track team is we have mountain bikes, right? You got to be able to navigate doing that. If that's something you're interested in. Swift water, you got to be a good swimmer. If you want to be a diver, you got a dive team. You know, there's there's tons of things that are actually uh, much needed skill sets that you really, if you want to spend any amount of time actually doing the rescues, you got to know how to do it. And, And it's not all about learning it beforehand. But one thing that's going to give you a leg up is just getting a baseline knowledge of some of those skills. No, you don't need to go into a search and rescue team being a diver. You just don't like they'll pay for you to go get the training that you need and and figure it out. However, if you at least understand diving in some capacity or you already are a diver, then great. That's a leg up. That's something that is used as as a bargaining chip for you trying to get in. And it's also, you have to think of yourself as how can I best be an asset to the team? What do I have to offer? So finding what you can be doing for the rest of the team and being, making the team better and stronger and not being a liability. Uh, So any way that you can think of of doing that in whatever capacity, do that, do those things. And then just, if you can meet the guys, get to know them. Uh, I didn't know anybody when I first moved here and one of my neighbors was talking to me about it and it's just like, yeah, I'm on the ski patrol and, you know, we're out on this, you know, thing. The other day, this guy got hurt and he had to call in search and rescue. And I was like, wait, what's search and rescue? Like, what is that? Cause we had search and rescue in EMS where, where I worked, but there weren't a whole lot of true search and rescues and it belonged to the volunteer rescue squad. And there just wasn't much of it. You know, we didn't have a mountain team. We didn't have a swift water team. It was all a part of what's called an ERT program, emergency rescue technician program. And it was completely different. And I was a part of the program where I did VMR, which is cutting on cars. I did structural collapse and confined space and uh, high angle and things like that. And it just had nothing to do with search and rescue. So I didn't realize being out West where you're in the mountains at elevation and there's vast amounts of just backcountry and wilderness, that there's a team that goes out and does that. Right. So I was like, holy shit, that's a thing. I didn't realize that. Uh, What's that all about? And he was like, yeah, man, like, you know, you can, and it basically explained all that to me. And I was like, where do I sign up? He's like, well, (laughs) you know, I think you can do it online. I was like, okay, what website? And I went to the sheriff's website and um, filled out an application. And then I couldn't send it anywhere because it was telling me that like, there wasn't a like the window wasn't open. Come to find out they only take applications once a year. And that's only when they have openings. The team I'm on only has 30 guys. And once 30 guys is up, they don't take applications. They don't have a need for it. And so, um, They weren't taking an application at the time. I was like, well, that sucks. And then just through working at Fieldcraft, there was a guy who came and took a class and I taught land nav, or he came and he took a survival class that I taught. And then he took a land nav class that I taught. And he's like, man, I just can't help but think, you know, one of my good friends is on search and rescue. And I just feel like you'd be a great fit. Is that something you'd have interest in? And I was like, as a matter of fact, it is, you know, that's something I'd really love to do. He after the class he drove me and I followed him over to his buddy's house, who happens to be on search and rescue, who is the brother to the commander, and uh, he's like, yeah, so thirty one, like, <laughs> yeah, right. And I was like, nice, man. and so um, he was like, yeah, so we're actually have openings, and I was like, no kidding. He's like, yeah, we actually are taking on a few rookies, you know. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Uh, Well, I'd love to put my name in the hat. He's like, well, we already have like enough applicants to fill a slot that we're kind of good with. And I was like, well, okay, you know, I get it. Um, is there a way that I can give you an application that you guys can just hang on to and, and have at, to look at should there be another opening? He's like, yeah, sure, fill it out. And so I got on there and filled it out and put all my experience on there and then uh, got a phone call. And they're like, hey, man, you know, it looks like you've got some good experience here. Uh, that that kind of puts your name in the hat if you're interested in going through the interviews and I was like, I'd freaking love to man. So, uh, just got really lucky, you know, right time, right place, right people. And I can probably attribute that to damn near everything that's been good for me in my life. Yeah.
0: Right. place, Right time. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So if somebody's sitting here listening, like, man, Austin's got some cool experiences, learned a lot. I know that you're teaching at Fieldcraft, right? What what classes are you teaching? How do people find you if they want to go get involved? I know there's just a lot of stuff that we've talked about. And I know that talking about yourself is not your forte and probably pretty exhausting, right? <laughs> <laughs> how, how do people get a hold of you, find you, maybe you want to get a, take a class?
1: Yeah, so uh, like you said, man, I teach for Fieldcraft Survival. I'm the creative media director for, for the company as well. Do a lot of the photography, some of the videography, and just kind of manage a lot of the process. But uh, you know, we're a survival preparedness company, and we're in the business of teaching people uh, the best ways to prepare themselves to go out and do whatever it is that they love to do, and and to even just live your day to day life in a more prepared version, a more capable version of you. So it's really important to all of us here. And it's, you know, the company's owned and o- and operated by a veteran green beret, Mike Glover, And uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in this company with a, an insane amount of, of capability. And I'm on the shoulders of giants here, man. Like I'm the youngest least experienced dude. And it's amazing to be surrounded by guys like that. But um, you know, if you want to come train with us, check out fieldcraftsurvival.com. We've got, I mean, gosh, in the first quarter of this year, we dropped 157 classes all over the country. Everything from pistol carbine to uh, personal security, where you get to come in, learn a little bit about the law and self-defense. And then the whole afternoon, you're spending literally being, being put into scenarios uh, of a guy with a guy in a blower suit. And you got a Sims pistol that uh, and you get to navigate your way through the scenario and then learn about that decision point of shoot no shoot. What are what's the criteria? What are what am I legally allowed to do? You know, it's an awesome freaking course that um, you know some of our guys here developed. And then we even teach canning and jarring, and we teach survival courses, uh, survival one hundred and one. Right, like you can come out to survival one and learn about the five basic needs of survival and how to prioritize them, those needs anywhere in the world. And you can survive that circumstance, right? And then land navigation. That's one of my favorites to teach, where you just come in, learn about the basics of just navigating, and then we'll go out in the field and we'll actually do it. We'll put some a ruck on your back, we'll put a map and a compass in your hand with a protractor and teach you to how to, you know, make waypoints and, you know, get your azimuth and, and actually walk around and use terrain navigation and terrain association to truly navigate, it's not just as simple as putting an A and a B on a map and walking in a straight line, right? You got terrain out there that you got to use to your advantage or it will cheat you up and spit you out. So come out and do that. And I mean, we've got a little bit of everything in between. And so you'll you'll find me you know, teaching survival, teaching med. We do a, a ton of them. We have a, a class called uh, uh, emergency medical treatment. You can come out and learn a lot about MARCH, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation, hypothermia and head injury how to actually implement the correct tools and saving somebody's life in an emergency in a traumatic situation, right? I love teaching those courses. It's just, I'm super passionate about it. And the students and everyone that comes to these classes, man, it's one of the coolest things that I've learned about teaching in the civilian space instead of the military is that in the military, you got guys that are like, oh, I gotta be here to check the block, man. Civilians that pay to come to a class, they're all freaking motivated, dude. It's awesome. (laughs) So you got a whole group of people who are like, just as down to be there as you are. And one thing that we're big on at Fieldcraft is building a community of people, right? Uh, more than anything, more than I want you to even come spend money at this, at, my, at this company is I want you to come and be a part of the community. I want you to come join in like-minded people who are all about being better versions of themselves and taking care of their families and preparing themselves and their communities. And, you know, I developed a curriculum for Fieldcraft called Responsible Citizen, And it's five different classes. It's emergency management, it's uh, survival, it's first aid, it's defense, and then it's pillars of preparedness. And it's taking that fifth one is taking all those skills and then implementing them into your life and how to do it without seeming like you got to be the dude with the tinfoil hat and a freaking battle belt uh, on your waist and navigating your life. You know, it's how to like, just be, continue being a normal person, but implement preparedness in your life. And those classes, I teach them every Wednesday from now until infinity, uh, every Wednesday night at six o'clock at our HQ here in Heber city. And it's free. Um, I I wanted to do it as an entry, uh, as a barrier, lowering the barrier of entry for people um, to actually, you know, who are like, you know, I'd love to come take a gunfighter pistol course, but I don't really know enough about it. I'd love to come learn about emergency medical treatment. You know, it's it's hard to commit a couple hundred dollars and a whole weekend of my life to doing something. Well, let me like let me put out something where I can talk to you about what we're doing as first responders. Let me get other first responders in here teaching you, and then give you some of our experiences. Give you like a couple hours of worth of a seminar on me just getting up and explaining some of these things and giving you some high level concepts to walk away with, where you can say, "Man, like I actually learned about what March is." We talk about it. Talk about few real basic concepts behind it. And then you make the determination on saying, Hey, I do need more training in this, or I do want to pursue more in that. And if you don't, that's fine. That's cool. I totally understand. That's why it's free. And that's why we do it for a couple hours. And then if you come complete all five courses, I'll even give you a discount on training, right? And nice. that was my, my incentive to get people involved because what I personally want and, you know, Mike might get mad and our marketing guy, Rob, might get upset about it, but (laughs) I'm not interested in in taking your money. I'm interested in putting out the correct information for people to be better uh, than they are right now and, or wherever they're at, because the margin for living and dying, the margin for being successful in a worst case scenario, it's not as big of a margin as people think. And you can do just a few things to really set yourself up and to really prepare yourself to handle whatever these emergencies are. You'll thank yourself a million times over for taking the time and a few hundred dollars of your money, really preparing yourself truly. And, you know, it wouldn't be a good business model if we didn't make money to keep the lights on, but you know, that's, we're in the business of making people better. So, you know, that's what we do, but fuelcraftsurvival.com we're on Instagram, we're on YouTube. Got a, you know, 450,000 subscribers on YouTube is amazing, man. And uh, it's awesome to be part of this community because we constantly are putting out a couple of videos a week on YouTube uh, just to try to put information out there for people to learn from. So uh, yeah, check us out. And then personally for me, my Instagram handle is uh Savage Lester at Savage Lester. It's kind of a long story, but you know growing up in rural north carolina and i feel like i ha- i feel like i have to defend it now because savage has like this horrible it it?
0: negative connotation yeah, yeah.
1: and and it, to be fair i made my instagram in 2014 okay <laughs> so it was and i got the nickname in high school you know everybody called me savage cuz i'm the only native american kid that went to school with a bunch of rednecks so Savage was my nickname. Oh my I just God. owned it. Right. And yeah. so As Savage you need to to, something like that. Yeah. You got to, man. There's no way around it, man. Oh. It's either gonna own you or you can own it. So I owned it. And uh so yeah, Savage Lester uh was my Instagram handle and thus his life. So roast me if you want, come at me, you know
0: what I'm saying? <laughs> awesome, man. Well, my favorite question that I'll that I'll end with and I'll and I'll leave you be is there anything that that you feel like you've learned throughout this whole time. Right. And I know that there's just a thousand things that we didn't get to, right. That you feel is important to share. You don't get asked often enough or you're like, man, I wish I'd have known that before I'd done it. My favorite open-ended question, I guess some wild answers.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Cause there's, there's a lot of lessons I would love to, to be able to put out there, but I would say that one thing that's probably benefited me the most in my life and has, has really, um, always brought me back to zero has always brought me back to being grounded is, is the willingness to be a student, man. Like, it doesn't matter how much you know in something. It doesn't matter how much you don't know. It doesn't matter whatever it is. Just always be a student, man. Like always be willing to learn. And I've spent a large part of my life knowing I wasn't going to be the fastest or the strongest or the smartest. Um, but, you know, like I said, man, just trying to be the hardest working guy in the room has taken me really far. And it's given me a lot of opportunities that I think other people miss because they're not willing to, you know, adapt that humility and adapt the ability to learn. And that's one of the best things I, I think anyone could do for themselves is just be a student for life and work hard, man.
0: Austin, awesome. once again, man, thank you for taking the time and sitting down with me. Uh, it was good getting to know you. Uh, you know, stay stay tuned for part two. Uh, that'll be coming out here uh, maybe in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, we've got it recorded, and... Uh We'll get it out to you guys as soon as we can, but Austin, once again, man, it was good good chatting, good getting to know you. I know that uh, after recording this, I've actually met you so uh, in person, so it was, it was nice meeting you in person, and I look forward to uh, running into you at some point in the future, but everybody listening, I hope you all took something away. Uh, maybe you've got something to chew on for the rest of the week, but other than that, uh, like I said, please like rate, subscribe, hit me up on the Instagrams, follow life beyond the mic. But that is enough chat for today. I hope you all have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next time.